are listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Welcome to church. We are incredibly excited to be here with you. Um, What that was supposed to be was a really cute moment in which the teaching text was read from a storybook Bible, the story of Cain and Abel, um, the story of the first murder recorded in the scriptures. And you might be wondering why the decisions. Well, part of the rationale behind that is this sense that for many of us, the, the Genesis narrative, which we're, we're going to be journeying through through Lent, um, we remember the storybook versions of them. We have, they're so ingrained in our culture, especially Western Christian culture. If you grew up in church, you, 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 any of you had a little felt board in Sunday school and the same character played Jesus, Moses, Noah. <laughs> so, you know, we have those ingrained in our memory and yet, the first 20-something chapters of Genesis are striking. They are an unfolding of the brokenness of creation, the, the fallout of the decision in the garden to partake of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, a, a decision made by our first parents to try to be gods in and of themselves. And so we wanted to present these sort of like childish renditions of these stories to kind of actually shock us to awareness that these stories are far darker and far stranger than they actually seem. And so with that said, I'm actually going to read you the story of Cain and Abel just to, if you're here for the first time, you're like, man, never heard that one. Don't worry. We're going to read it for you right now. And then we're going to explore the meaning behind this tragic, terrible tale that lies on page three of our Bibles. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? 
I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, we began a series called Contending with Death. It's our Lenten series in which we are exploring the Genesis narrative in order to unpack the, the, the reality of sin and death. See, what, what, what the Bible witnesses to and what Scripture witnesses to is that the world is not as it should be. The great philosophical problem, the problem of evil, the Bible responds and says that the reason why there's evil and suffering and death in the world is because of this thing called sin, this thing that rends relationship. Last week, we defined sin as any human activity that breaks relationship. We defined evil as the broken relationships and death as the ultimate breaking of relationship. And so the problem of evil, according to the witness of the scriptures, is that sin has entered the world and severed our relationship to God, to ourselves, to one another, and to the very creation itself. And so the rest of the Genesis narrative is the ripple effects of what happened in the garden. It is the ramifications and the, out- and the first manifestation we see of their decision is in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Now, in order to understand this narrative and to arrive at a place where we understand what God is trying to communicate to us, we have to understand that this, this narrative has two sort of narrative structures to it. There's a sense in which the story structure helps give it its meaning. The, the, the method defines the message. So the first narrative structure that kind of enfolds this story is a journey from hope to despair. See, in the beginning of Genesis 4, Eve, she she makes this proclamation. She says, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. It's almost as if the author of Genesis is recalling us back to Genesis 2, in which God makes man, in which God makes man in his own image and his likeness and places him in the garden. At the beginning of the story, there's a sense of hope. With new life and a new human named Cain, there should be hope. There's this hope that in the posterity of Adam and Eve, there would be some sense of renewal, that, that even though they couldn't return to the garden, at least they could live at the, on the edge of it in peace. But quickly, that story turns to a story of despair, where the hope of a Loving family, living on the edge of the garden, doing their best to till the ground, turns into the story of murder and destruction. Hope to despair. In many ways, it encapsulates the human experience where we have moments of intense hope. We have moments of an intense expectation. We have moments that things are going to go right and go well. Our endeavors, our relationships, our families, those things are going to work themselves out only to experience death. Hope to despair. The second narrative structure is a movement from family to society. 
See, in the story of Cain and Abel, you have this first murder that occurs in the witness of the scriptures. It's the first act of violence we see in the scriptures. And then as the story moves on, as as Genesis 4 continues, we learn that Cain builds a city and names it after his son Enoch. And that Cain's descendants become these kind of city builders. They create a society. But... There's this descendant named Lamech, and Lamech is one who's proud to be known as a murderer. He's proud to let the people know. He actually, is in the, in, there's a portion in Genesis 4 where he's bragging to his wives that if anyone wounds me, I will slay them. And if Cain's punishment was times seven, well, Lamech's wrath will be 70 times seven. So not only does the first Narrative structure brings us from hope to despair, but the, but the next narrative structure brings from the spreading of sin from families to society. That broken humans create broken families and broken families create broken societies. It is why the witness of scriptures is quite clear that sin can be individual and systemic. It's very clear that revel in murder, sin, and death. And so... It's with these, these two narrative structures, moving from hope to despair and the spread of sin from families to societies in which we now begin to understand these two brothers, Cain and Abel. We have to understand, if, if you ever go back quickly to your, maybe your literature class in high school, you understand the idea of, of, a, of a foil, where you have one character who serves as the utter opposite of the other so we can better understand that character. Abel is Cain's foil. And we learn this by two things, his occupations and the offerings they bring to the Lord. Cain works the land. He's like his father Adam, who was a gardener. He, he tills the soil, he works the land, while Abel is a shepherd. He's a herdsman. He domesticates animals and, and works on the land in a way that's different from his brother Cain. And so there's a sense in which well, why is this different matter? They, they chose different jobs. They didn't want to, you know, move in on each other's business. Like, well, what's, the, what's the big deal here? Well, Robert Alter, a biblical scholar he, and, and, and a scholar of literature, he says this, that, that Cain and Abel's story is actually a dramatization of a rivalry that, between herdsmen and farmers present in the ancient Near East. That these two groups, though both mutually beneficial to society, there was this rivalry between those who tilled the ground and those who herded animals. Already, by their very occupations, we know that these brothers are destined for conflict. But then, that's not the only difference between them. The second difference is the offerings they bring to the Lord. It says this in Genesis 4, 3 to 5, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. What's the big deal here? They brought, brought an offering. There seems to be no reason explicitly why God accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's. But if we look at the text, it says that Abel brought the firstlings, the, the first fruit of his flock, their fat portions. And if we, we have to remember that Genesis doesn't exist in isolation. It sits within the Torah. And so if we look at the Levitical law, we know that when you brought an offering, you brought the Lord the best. 
You didn't bring him a defective lamb to the Lord. So because we know that it says that in the Torah, we know Abel brought an appropriate offering to the Lord. But the lack of description in Cain's offering tells us something about Cain. That Cain didn't bring God his best is the implication. The lack of description. Remember, whenever the Bible says something explicitly, it gives us explicit description, you know it's important. When you read the Bible, right, you, you ever read, like, the, the characters seem sometimes very flat. It's not like modern literature where you get a description of their, a two-page description of their blue eyes, or, or you get a, a, a long, long discursus on how they smiled in the pale moonlight. No, 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 the Bible's, see, thank you. You know, I wish I was that intentionally funny sometimes. But that's the point, right? The characters are sometimes seem, seem two-dimensional. And so when the Bible steps in and says, like it says of, of Saul, that he was tall and beautiful, there's, they're saying pay attention because we don't often give these descriptions. And so Abel gets the descriptor, Cain does it, which tells us that most likely Cain's offering wasn't his best, which tells us something about his relationship to God, that often one's one's giving of sacrifice to God, what, what they gave God was reminiscent of their spiritual condition. That Cain didn't value his relationship to Yahweh. That already the serpent was beginning to do its work in Cain. And so we have these two brothers. And really, what we learn about Abel is that Abel does not deserve death. In fact, He's younger, but he's the favored one, which is a whole theme that works throughout Genesis where the younger brother usurps the older brother. It's almost as if it's an outworking of grace that the deserving and the least deserving, the least deserving gets honored and the deserving seems to get pushed to the side. And so we learn about Abel, then we learn that Cain has, should have no motivation to kill his brother unless his perception of his brother is warped. And we learn also that Cain is on the precipice. He's on the edge. Sin, evil, and death have already begun to work its way into his heart. That the ramifications of the fall were not limited to Adam and Eve, but have begun their work in their firstborn. And this is why the Lord appears to Cain and not to Abel. Which is a whole other sermon on why God appears to the murderer and not to the faithful one that God makes it known that his, his prerogative has always been those who are on the edge of falling apart, always been near to those who are sick. For Jesus said, I've not come for the healthy, but I've come for the sick. And so the Lord appears to Cain because he's very angry and his countenance fell, which Cain doesn't understand his own sinfulness, his own status, his own inability to please God because he has not given God his best. Cain is already displacing the blame. He's not looking at self. He's not taking this moment to be reflective and look within. No, no, he's beginning already to look outwards. Who can I blame this on? Isn't that the human experience when we are confronted with our own failings rather than look inward first? We often tend to look outward to displace our negative behaviors on the actions of others. 
Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord appears before him and the Lord gives him a warning. He tells him, sin is lurking at the door. And it desires you, Cain. But you must master it. Just like sin and temptation is personified in the serpent, God personifies sin as like this beast crouching at the door. I remember um, I was scrolling through Instagram the other day, and there's this, this video of this kid like walking outside, and like a little baby bear coming on the way, and like he's like so excited to see the baby bear, and then the mom is in the background, and it's like just sitting at the door, and they run back inside. Think that. Think huge, monstrous. Think a beast lurking at the door, waiting to devour Cain, waiting to take him out, waiting to strike the final blow. But God steps in. He offers grace. He says, listen, there's something in the door of your heart. There's something there. Its, it's desire is for you. It, it's threatening you. This situation could go one of two ways, Cain. Do well and you'll be accepted. But watch out, watch out. There's this sin lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. But Cain ignores the warning of the Lord. In the end, Cain is mastered by the beast. He's devoured by it, and in turn devours his brother. And so evil makes way for sin, and sin creates death. But the question is, what drives Cain to commit murder? You know, you don't just wake up and want to murder your brother. Though, I don't know, depending on your sibling relationships, maybe. You never know. I'm an only child, so I've got to deal with that, you know. <laughs> but what, what drives him? What drives him to, to lure? This is not even a, a moment of passion. Like, you know, read in the news, talking about crimes of passion, where someone just reacts violently to someone. No, no, this was premeditated. This was, he lured him into a field, not to have a chat, but to kill him. What brings Cain there? What has sin done to Cain's heart? What has the beast done to Cain's soul? And I think when we look at the text, we, we see two things. We see, number one, that Cain has a warped perception of self. That when God confronts Cain with his, with the reality that he has not given God his best, and that if Cain really wants to be accepted by God, they're simple. He just must do well. He must respond and be obedient and live as one who honors God. And Cain isn't having it. He's angry. He looks at his brother showing favor, being shown favor by God, and rather than look at himself, begins to look at his brother. He's angry at God's decision to favor his brother's offering and not his. Why? He must have a warped perception of self. He sees himself differently than he actually is. The, he's like in one of those funhouse mirrors where he does not look as he actually appears. He thinks highly of himself. And he doesn't heed the Lord's warning. But this warped perception of self allows Cain to create a warped perception of his brother. Jealousy, greed, pride, rage distort the view of the other. When we are jealous and we are greedy 
and we are prideful, and we are envious, and we are rageful, and when we are lustful, the person, the other, the person in front of us gets distorted. We often ask, how could, when we see like a, a grievous thing in the news, when we see some terrible act of violence on the news, we often ask the question, how could someone do that to someone else? How could a human do that to another human? We're looking at the news today, and we're, we're, we're seeing the outworkings of violence in Ukraine. We're saying, man, what could drive someone to do that to a fellow human being? But when sin is working on us, we dehumanize the other. We turn brothers into enemies. We turn people into objects. We, we distort, so distort the image of God and the other that it seems that violence against them is justified. And when we cannot see a fellow person as an image bearer, it is easy to commit an act of violence against them. Whether that's physical violence or violence with our tongues or the secret violence of our minds and our thoughts. It starts because Cain has a warped perception of himself that warps his perception of his brother. That we already see that implicit in the text with Cain and his offering. There's a broken relationship with himself because he cannot see himself and actually respond properly, which would be to repent and ask God for forgiveness and then do the right thing, which leads to a broken relationship with his brother, which then, after he kills his brother and God confronts him, it leads to a broken relationship with creation, because the ground will no longer work for him, which eventually leads to his exile, which is death. Death is akin to exile. See, his warped perception of self warps his perception of his brother, allows him to murder him, and Cain's punishment is to be driven even further from the garden. When we look at the, in, in, in the text, it says that he's driven further east. East is, is east of the garden. He's dri being driven further into the wilds and wastes. We have to think geographically, the land of Canaan, Israel, is nestled right against, up against the Mediterranean Sea. So east of that, is desert, wild, and wastelands. In fact, in the prophet, when they talk about the east, the prophets, when they talk about an east wind coming in and blowing in, they're thinking about harsh, hot desert winds, wild and waste. And so he's driven further east into exile. He's condemned to death. So much so he tells God, my punishment is too much for me. And so God makes a provision for him in his grace that he marks Cain with the mark of Cain which was to warn anyone that if they would try to murder him, they would experience retribution from God. But Cain is essentially dead. He's driven as far as he could be from the garden, from his family. And that is the result of relational breakdown. When, when, we have, when our relationships break down because of sin, because of our warped perceptions of self and of the other, when those relationships break down, we are exiled from one another. You know, the great plight of the human condition is that we, it's almost like we all live on our own personal islands, separated by sin, dead and ashamed, or we're all covering ourselves up with fig leaves because we cannot stand the sight of one another. We don't want to let anyone in, and if they get too close, and if we get too close, we lash out to protect ourselves. 
We are like Cain, driven east, far from each other, far from family, and far from human relationship and bonds of fellowship. But the, the most tragic thing of all of this is that it doesn't end with Cain. I mentioned a moment ago about the, the narrative structure of moving from family to society. In Genesis 4, chapter 23 to 24, at the end of Genesis 4, there's this genealogy of Cain's descendants. And then it lands on Lamech, who I, who I mentioned a moment ago. And this is Lamech's song, his, his poem about himself. He says this, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. That Cain's decision to murder his brother has now culminated in a society of people where murder is celebrated, where their appropriate response for being wounded by another is to kill them in return. Notice the inversion of Jesus' command for forgiveness. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech 77-fold. When Peter asked Jesus how much he should forgive someone, Jesus says 70 times 7. That our capacity for sin is the complete opposite of the gospel. That while the gospel calls for radical forgiveness and restoration, the way of the world, the way of Lamech, the legacy of Cain is to wound, is to kill someone for wounding us and to strike down young men for striking us. And so now, open your newspaper, scroll through Instagram, and we see violence and death in the world, we are looking at the legacy of Cain. We are looking at the legacy of violent individuals doing violence against their families, and then those families doing violence against one another, ultimately culminating into societies that wage war and pillage and plunder and enslave because that is the human condition. That is the outworking of what happened in the garden. The question is, what about us? What about Cain and Abel fits into our own lives? Well, Genesis 4 is an illustration of the human condition. See, when we read stories like this that often have two characters, there's the danger to overemphasize with one of them, to either... You see this when people read the Gospels. They either really see themselves as Jesus and the disciples or they see themselves as the Pharisees. They either really condemn themselves or really think highly of themselves. Or they see them, they see themselves as, and when they read the Psalms, they see themselves solely in the psalmist who's crying out for help and solely the people, their en- people they don't like, their enemies as those oppressing the psalmist. But the Bible actually asks us to do something more radical, to see ourselves in both of them, that we are both Cain and Abel, that we are both have the propensity to do violence against the other, and we are also victims of the violence of others. That to contend with death between Christ's resurrection and his return is to recognize that we have the capacity to be Cain, and sadly, when it's convenient for ourselves, when we're in pain and we're suffering, or we want to get our way, we create enemies out of brothers and sisters. We, 
We make opponents out of family members. We, we dehumanize people who might seem different from us. We are like Cain. And every so often we're bold enough to draw them into the field and strike them. You know, that might not be literal murder, but it could be what we say about them behind closed doors or what we think about them or the way in which we conduct ourselves. It could be in our apathy when we turn a blind eye to oppression and injustice. We are Cain in those moments, drawing our brothers and sisters out into the field to wound them and to kill them. But we are also able. Violence has been done to us. Abuses and hurts, betrayals and pain, we are able. We have been struck down in the field and we feel like no one notices. It's been done in secret. But here's the great hope, is that Abel's blood cries out and God hears it. And so while there's sober warning for in those moments we are Cain, where God is confronting us about the beast at the door, there's also some comforting moments when we remember that Abel's death did not go unavenged, that God is the God of justice who sees our current plights and pains and will indeed bring to justice those hurts and restore those years the locust has eaten. And so how do we contend with death? How do we wrestle in this messy middle? How do we acknowledge our capacity to be Cain and deal with the pain and trauma of being able? Well, the response has always been love, to cultivate the virtue of love. According to Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval philosopher, he says, love is a choice to will the good of the other. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard expands in this saying, to love with the, the, our capacity to be like Cain, we must learn to cultivate love. Not to have a distorted self-image of self or a distorted self-image of other, but through the eyes of love, through God's eyes, see ourselves as we are and see others as they are. Image, image bearers of God, worthy of dignity and respect and honor. And to view ourselves honestly, us too bearing the image of God, but also flawed and sinful and broken and, in, and have areas in us that need redemption and healing and wholeness. To live between the times, between Jesus' resurrection and ret return, to live in Lent, because human history is a Lenten history. We are living in an age of, of, of sin and brokenness and hurting. The only way to combat the beast is to cultivate love, to will the good of the other, and to help them draw near to God. That is the only way you'll keep the cane in you at bay. That is the only way you'll be able to endure as Abel, is to cultivate the virtue of love to will the good of the other, indiscriminate of who they are or what they are or what they've done or where they're from. To draw them closer to God, that is the distinct calling of every believer, to cultivate love because it's love that actually helps us slay the beast crouching at the door because it was love in the end that slayed the serpent. See, in a, in a great inversion of fortunes, Jesus 
allows the canes of this world to wound him so that he might defeat them. That is how Jesus conquers sin and death. He allows sin and death to conquer him and then shows them in the end they actually never had power over him to begin with. But his motivation was love. His motivation was the heart of the Father empowered by the Holy Spirit who is the very love of God. And that's what allows him to conquer. And so we as his children who live in these in-between times, well, our only choice is love. To cultivate love. To keep Cain at bay and to endure what it means to be able. For only love can soothe us in the midst of our hurts and our brokenness and our hurting. And only love can keep us from striking our brothers. So I'm asking the worship team to come join me. In a moment, we are going to approach the Lord's table. But before we do that, I want us to pray this prayer together. You know, when we talk about love and cultivating the virtue of love, it's, it's incredibly easy to, to settle for trite Valentine's Day Hollywood visions of love. But that is not the love that Christ calls us to. Love, according to the scriptures, is the willingness to die for one's enemy. Love, according to the scriptures, is turning the other cheek and praying for those who persecute us. Love, according to the scriptures, is unmerited, a sheer act of mercy and grace. Love according to the scriptures, costs everything. Soren Kierkegaard, who we just quoted a moment ago, wrote this book called The Works of Love. And in that book, he says, he says it's easy to love humanity because this humanity is an abstraction, right? We can all sit in this room and raise, yeah, I love people. I love humans. I, I love the world. But those are abstractions, he says, no, 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 the, the biblical call to love is more radical because all Jesus says is, love your neighbor. These images of what we think our fellow man is, no, 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 just love the person in front of you. That's actually the hardest tax, Kierkegaard argues. That Christ's call to love is simply a call to look at your neighbor, identify them as your neighbor, and love them as such. He has this great lie, great, great line. He says, he says, if your neighbor and your if if your neighbor is also your enemy, close your eyes and you'll still see your neighbor. There's this sense in which we, we're not called to love generalities, we're called to love individuals. To look at the people in front of us, the, the very people God has placed in our lives and love them. And only by cultivating that kind of love, neighbor love, which is no respecter of persons, no respecter of, of economic status or social status. It, no, no, no. It just says the person in front of you, love that person. That's the kind of love we've been called to cultivate. And that's the only kind of love that staves off the sting of death and keeps us from becoming like Cain and protects us when we are victims like Abel. Allow me to pray this prayer over you and then our worship team's gonna lead us in some worship and then I'll come back and lead us to the Lord's table. Allow me to pray this over you. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. 
Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may so not, not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive. It is in the pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in the dying that we are born to eternal life. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's worship and we'll take communion.